To be able to have a shot at competing at my national open is just so incredible to me. So I wanted to make sure I was as prepared as possible. You know, the idea of, you know, how the US Open Championship, you know, should be, you know, hot and firm and fast and this and that. My, my thought was, I've got a tea time, let's go. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the USGA Golf Journal podcast. I'm Dave Giancola. As you heard there, Christina Kim is psyched to have qualified to play in yet another U.S. Women's Open, this time at the Olympic Club in San Francisco, not far from where she was born and raised. We not only talked about the upcoming championship and all things golf, but we also talked about some things that are very important to her off the course. Mike Trosel and I had a ton of fun with this one. Enjoy. All right, Christina, you just qualified for your 17th U.S. Open, and that makes you one of the most experienced players in this year's field. You had to do it at a 36-hole qualifier in Massachusetts that was so cold and rainy and windy that you were actually wearing earmuffs out there. What was that experience like? Well, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I, at the time, I hadn't even thought that it was to qualify for my 17th U.S. Women's Open. If, if, if the U.S. Women's Open was my child, I didn't realize they'd already be driving um, before I even <laughs> attempted this qualifier. I, you know, I, I had a great time um, because of the way that the scheduling had worked out. I was doing PJ tour live commentary the week prior. So all of the wonderful, say California side qualifiers and all of that had been um, taking place for the most part during that first week. And so I kind of told myself, you know, I had an option to go somewhere on Monday. I had another option to go somewhere, a couple places on Tuesday and, you know, sitting on one tushy for four days straight can take a toll on your body. It is so hard doing nothing. So I kind of told myself I'm going to fly wherever my qualifier will be on Monday. And then I will get a practice round in on Tuesday so that I can be as fresh as I can because um, obviously, you know, the, and any USGA championship is a major championship and they are the pinnacle event of every level of golf. And to be able to have a shot at competing at my national open is just so incredible to me. So I wanted to make sure I was as prepared as possible. And I had packed for weather anywhere from, you know, basically 40 degrees Fahrenheit to 40 degrees Celsius, because anything can happen, especially springtime in uh, New England. And it was, it was, it was awesome. I love golf period. And so, you know, as opposed to thinking, oh my goodness, you know, we're having to deal with, you know, the, these conditions that are not necessarily what you would expect from, you know, the idea of, you know, oh, the U.S. Open, uh, U.S. Women's Open Championship, you know, should be, you know, hot and firm and fast and this and that. My, my thought was, I've got a tea time, let's go. I um, was also very fortunate because it, you know, Seth Rayner is one of my favorite golf course architects and I I was in a bit of a rush, so I didn't realize when I made the selection for my qualifying site that Dedham Polo and Country Club is an old school Seth Rayner design. So I was I was over the moon and I said, you know what? Everyone's got to play in this weather. We're just going to have a ball. We're going to enjoy ourselves as much as, you know, is humanly possible and and just play golf and see where the chips fall. And, and I was fortunate enough to be co-medalist. And it was just it was remarkable. A second round, 66, a great second round to uh, to earn your way in. Uh, as you said, springtime in New England, doesn't matter what the weather is, what's blowing, you were, uh, you were up for it and, uh, and really excited about those conditions and earned your way in to another U.S. Open. And Christina, being from Northern California originally, 
Describe what it means to be playing at the Olympic Club coming up. Well, like you said, I am a, a Northern California native. I was born and raised in San Jose. And though I had never, I had so many opportunities, I just never took up the opportunity to play at Olympic Club. There's so much history behind the golf course. And to be able to have my national open be you know, within 70 miles of where I grew up is I, I'm sure deep down, I was doing my best to think about only where I was in the present. I know that deep down there was a part of me that was thinking you've got to get through because this is, th this is truly a home game for you. You know, a few years ago, we were lucky enough to have played at, at the beautiful golf course at Cordoval, which was, you know, 28 minutes from the house that I grew up in. Um, and to be able to come back to Northern California and play such a revered historical golf course like Olympic Club is it's almost indescribable. It's going to be an incredible week. It's hosted five U.S. Opens, the first U.S. Women's Open to be played at the Olympic Club, such an iconic venue, and the 76th playing of the Women's Open. So you mentioned history. There is a ton of it. You also mentioned PGA Tour Live and some of the broadcasting you're doing. I wanted to pick your brain on that because it must be so tough. You're not done playing. And so to balance those two crafts at the same time really has to impact how you go about your preparation from a plan perspective, but also preparing for a broadcast, which is so, so tough. What's that been like? What's that experience been like? Well, everyone with PJ Tour Entertainment has been just incredible by way of communication, by way of asking me what my schedule looks like. They're, they're very keen to have me continue doing some commentary and um, analysis during the PJ Tour live coverage. They, they are still cognizant of the fact that I'm still actively playing. I am playing every tournament pretty much. You know, I'm taking a few weeks off here or there, more for myself, my body, my mental health than anything else. And so there, there is this sort of uh, interesting balance that I have to maintain because if I'm going to take time off, to do my analysis, I would really, I, I feel more comfortable having a week after the analysis to be able to go and, you know, get my body working again, if you will. Um, so I've been very, very fortunate to work with some amazing people. And if I'm being honest, I, 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 I tell myself, you know, I'm still a touring professional. So I'm just going to see things that are taking place on the golf course analyze them the way I would, whether, you know, if I were in that same situation and just kind of take it from there, obviously it's a little bit different world when the PJ tour players hit it on average upwards of 24% farther than we do on the ladies tours. So I'm like, I don't know, 180, I don't know, like half joking being like, Oh, eight iron. And they're like, yeah, it's an eight iron. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Okay. I was, I was <laughs> kind of joking, but that's a real thing. Okay. And so it's been, it's been so much fun. And, and one thing I love about what the PJ tour live coverage has turned into these last several years. And even going forward, it's going to be even more incredible is if you, as a golf fan, which I am, I am the ultimate golf nerd. You truly get a sense of what it's like being inside the ropes with these groups because you watch every shot they hit. And yes, while obviously we have the best golfers in the world and the, in, in this situation, the best golfers in the, in the men's game, you sit there and you're like, Oh my goodness. Like, Wow, I didn't know whether it's a Bryson DeChambeau, a Phil Mickelson, a Xander Shoffley, like miss hit shot because a lot of times some, you know, in in 
previous coverage with different networks, sometimes you, you'll see some of the most atrocious shots, but you generally see only the best of the best of the best. It's like, well, if they hit every shot perfect, then there would be a lot more sub 60 rounds. And that's just not the reality of the game. So I feel like PJ tour live has done such an amazing job of truly being able to get people to realize, Hey, you don't have to hit every shot perfect because I know that that situation in and of itself can be very daunting and very intimidating to a lot of people that they don't want to pick up the game. So I think that the, um, uh, the adding in those variables of understanding, not every shot is hit perfectly. And at the same time, being able to execute the uh, recovery shots show that, you know, just how well-rounded these guys are. And it shows on a mental side, you don't have to hit every shot perfect. And, and if you miss hit a shot, if you, if you hit a shank, it's not the end of the world, you know. And um, I think it, it really shows on a deeper level the resilience that is required to make it and stay out on the PJ Tour and on the LPJ Tour European tour tours around the world at, at the highest levels of professional golf. I think it's a great point because when you, when you do travel that entire round with a player in let's say a featured groups type of coverage, you have the highs and lows, right? The roller coaster ride of emotions, uh, physical, the, the mental exhaustion. And then with the, with the enhanced audio and what the microphones can pick up, you feel like sometimes you're Jordan Spieth's caddy at a certain point, right? You hear it, you hear um, the back and forth. It's tremendous. Has being a broadcaster and being, as you said, inside the ropes type of feel, has it taught you anything that you applied to your game? I think it has reaffirmed me, um, you know, obviously by, by, by being fortunate enough to do this uh, broadcasting and analysis, it, it's been nice because there are times when, you know, you'll sit there, you'll be like, Oh my goodness, Joe, like Jordan, Justin Thomas just stubbed the chip. And then the round finishes and you're like, Oh my goodness, Justin Thomas just shot 65 with a stub chip somewhere in his round, you know, it, it reaffirms the, uh, the concept to me of truly trying to stay present. And yes, you may have stubbed a chip. That's not to say that you're going to stub this next chip. You know, history doesn't necessarily have to repeat itself. And every single shot is a new and unique opportunity. So for me, being able to watch the men and stay with them throughout an entire round, yes, you're right. You see the emotional highs, the emotional lows. There are times when now, just based on looking at someone's body language, I'll have a good idea of what they're going to shoot before they even make it to the first green. And so for me, it's, it's fun because I get a little bit of like psychoanalysis going in my own little head, of, you know, just the importance of, you know, having your shoulders back, keeping your chin neutral, not, not, you know, don't turn your nose up, just having like a neutral chin, shoulders back, deep belly breathing, um, walking at your pace. Some people just generally have a much quicker gait, much, uh, you know, quicker cadence to their walk. Some people tend to do better when they walk slowly and it maintains their heart rate and breathing exercises and just the communication that you hear between the, the player and caddy, I think is one of my favorite aspects because you sit there and, and you, if you get someone like Colin Morikawa, who is very, very analytical and wants to know every single thing and he and his caddy do a great job of, of doing that in a timely fashion. And then you get someone like Dustin Johnson, where his brother AJ will read the putts and then Dustin looks at the line. And I think his brother basically points at a spot and DJ grunts and hits it. And he's number one in the world. Like it's, it shows just how there is no true one formula to this game. And that again, for me shows just how inclusive this game is and how endless the possibilities are 
to be able to be the best golfer that you can be by being true to your own nature. Yeah, Christina, that's a, it's a great point that there's really no, you know, one size fits all for golfers. And, you know, what you get to do is a great peek behind the curtain at the different players on the PGA Tour, on the LPGA Tour, their personalities, their playing styles. It's all fascinating. And you mentioned you've been a golfer your entire life. You're a golf nerd. You know, for you dabbling into broadcasting, what's been the most challenging aspect? And have you had anyone who mentored you and kind of helped you out as you were starting to get into it? Well, um, this may come as a surprise to some of the people listening. There may or may not be a little bit of an internal battle at times for me to find some uh, ways in which I can describe things in a less colorful manner. <laughs> I, um, you know, um, I, I have been known to... Uh, get a little swearsy uh, at times. I have not yet, nor do I ever anticipate going that route by way of my broadcasting because, you know, I can, I can turn that off. Um, but for me, you know, the most challenging part is to be as immersed as I am in it without being too emotionally invested because I like, like I had said, and like you had said, I am a golf nerd and I love every aspect of the game. Um, you know, obviously having been on tours is going on, you know, I don't know, 20 years or something like that, 19 years that I've had to, you know, undergo my own metamorphosis of understanding that my self-worth is not associated with my score and no one else's self-worth is associated with their scores. And, Obviously, you, you know, want your players that you follow along and you are a fan of to do well. And sometimes, you know, I, I think um, watching someone, for me, there's a difference between if someone were to win versus someone losing a tournament. You know, if if, if you have two guys, if one guy birdies to, to, to win the tournament, the other guy didn't lose. You know, and sometimes getting that across to people to understand, like, no, someone did not blow it. It's just if someone beat you, someone beat you. And you have to take that in stride. You have to be a gracious um, runner up, if you will. And uh, in terms of the mentoring, I've been, like I said, I'm a golf nerd. I've been watching the broadcast for literal decades now. And, um, you know, I... I kind of take my own little spin on things because I, I joke that the only difference between when I'm doing the broadcast for PG tour live versus when I'm watching at home, sort of, you know, just hanging out with my friends on a Sunday afternoon is I'm wearing pants and I'm not eating. Like, you know, I, I try and do my best to make sure that my analysis is as genuine and true from the heart as can be, because I know that I don't have a journalism degree. I don't have decades of experience of, you know, painting the story in a specific way, I'll just sit there and be like, dude, did you see that shot? That was insane. You know, so just sort of injecting the way that I would analyze things as a player. Um, but, you know, obviously my, my first week out, I had Karen Stupples, who I've been, I've, I've known since I was 16 years old, as it turns out. And, you know, watching her career and Jerry Fultz has been a wonderful, um, a uh, person for me to sort of bounce ideas off of um, Kay Cockrell, huge fan, Northern California girl as well. There, there are so many people obviously that have influenced the way that I, you know, go about my day, let alone just how I, I, I sort of go about my, my commentary side, if you will. 
if you haven't heard Christina on broadcast, she's also an excellent follow on Twitter and very thoughtful with with your social posts on Twitter. You speak a lot about mental health, the importance. You know, May was Mental Health Awareness Month. You talk about health and fitness. Before this, you said you were up early on the West Coast. You got your workout in. What about the health and fitness, mental health, and really the longevity that you've had in the sport? How has that all come together and play hand in hand? Well... Again, like I had said earlier, there's that point where, and, and this is something that I think is so important for young people to understand, and to an extent, even more important for parents to understand if they have kids that are diving into anything, whether it's sports, whether it's the arts, whether it's um, it be a theater and things like all oh, theater is part of the arts, in that your performance does not indicate whether or not you're a good person. And so for me, a lot of the mental health things come by way of my own struggles over the years. It's an everyday, um, not necessarily a battle. It's just something I have to do to make sure I check in with myself every day. I, I have to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm able to stay present and I can, I've also come to understand that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Um, I, I have my own podcast. I just started with Alan Shipnuck called Full Send with Christina Kim and Alan Shipnuck that we had an episode, um, you know, a little ways back where we did discuss some of the journey that I went on in terms of my mental health, in terms of my um, uh, attempts at suicide and things like that. And, and, For me, so much of where my mental health struggles come from is by being immersed in the past or so far ahead in the future that you don't realize that the future is never written, but you are presently the pen and the paper. So um, for me, so much of it is understanding sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Sometimes, you know, on really bad days, I have a checklist that it's like, did you wake up? Even though it's an automatic response of your body, that's still a victory. Did you get out of bed? Maybe it took you three hours to do so. You still did it. That's a victory. Did you drink some water? That's a victory. Did you, you know, any, any number of these tiny, tiny things, did you do anything? That's a victory. And, and so being able to take part in the small victories in a day helps a really bad day turn into an okay day. And it turns an okay day into an, uh, a, a decent day, an all right day, a good day. And, and sometimes those little small victories will make you remember that a good day can be a great day because you, you did it. You did the thing. And so for me, there has also been a tie in between um, fitness and mental health because, you know, we're, we're these amazing, complicated sacks of flesh that have uh, chemical reactions happening all the time by virtue of, of, of exercise, get your heart rate up, your body releases serotonin, dopamine, prolactin, all these happy hormones. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why I've been so focused on my mental and, and physical health, especially in these last few you know, in the, in the last year and a little bit is because it's been so hard by way of everything going on with the pandemic. It's easy, you know, in the before times, it's easy to go out, run around, do this, do that, whatever. And, and while nowadays we're getting much closer to returning to a, a sense of, of what we knew from the before times, there have to be little things that you do to make sure that you're checking in with yourself, you know, whether it's, even if it's doing, you know, three sets of 10 squats, 
or, you know, trying to see how many crunches you can do in a day or dead bugs or, or something like that, or just, you know, kind of making sure that you're moving around because as your body atrophies, you know, that's where some of the pain comes in You you get these little niggles that you're just like, oh, my back feels kind of tight. And it's like, well, you know, if you're doing just a couple sets of clamshells in a day, you'll be able to at least maintain the strength in your glutes, which is oftentimes where um, a weakness in your glutes is going to be a huge cause in lower back pain. And, you know, everything is interconnected. And so uh, physical health is vitally important to mental health and Um, so, you know, it's just this beautiful series of checks and balances that I've been trying to maintain in these last, uh, you know, in this last year and a bit to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, to show my body some love, you know, and yes, when I'm sitting there shredding it at the gym and, you know, reaching a new PR in deadlifts or whatever it may be, you know, yes, you get that sense of accomplishment. And then at the same time, you're like, I just broke my body. My body's going to hurt real bad tomorrow. <laughs> and that, that's okay though. Cause that just is a sign of rebuilding. And, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to, you know, tear those muscle fibers so that you can build more on top of it. And that gives you an opportunity to make sure that the next day you're putting an emphasis on stretching and, and stretching in and of itself can have wonderful mental um, you know, positive mental, um, you know, sort of reactions and things like that. So it's just this beautiful, delicate dance that we get to, we don't have to, we get to perform every single day within our own universe. Well, Christina, I think, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to listen to that full send episode with Alan. And, you know, what you talked about, I think is certainly very motivational and it's touched a lot of people. Just what I appreciated was your, your self-awareness, your certainly your sense of humor, which has always been there your enthusiasm, not just for the game, but really for life and, and really the, the growth that you've shown on your journey and that journey that's not always, you know, it's a smooth sail from point A to B. I think that's what a lot of people can appreciate in, in the story that you've shared. You know, I've seen a lot of comments from people on Twitter uh, about how you've inspired people that they've been listening to your story. They've heard some things and it's motivated them to do something. Who or what inspires you in what you do? Well, one, thank you for those kind words. Um, you know, when it comes to inspiration for me, it, it sounds so, so silly. Um, but one person that inspires me every single day is my mother. Uh, when I was going through my lowest of lows, I oftentimes would just be so focused on myself because I'm always, I was always the kind of person that wanted to help other people so that I didn't have to focus on my own pain and, you know, I, I had spoken with my mother after, you know, everything kind of came out and, and all that. And she gave me some amazing perspective and insight into what life was like for her being an immigrant, coming into a new country without being fluent in the language of the country. You're entering in a difficult time with, you know, all these horrible germ-ridden children that you expelled from your body and, and all of these things that, you know, it, it allowed me to have some perspective on on things. And one thing she had told me, which I think about almost constantly, is that, you know, even in the darkest of night, there's always a beautiful sunrise. So that has provided me the opportunity to be hopeful and to maintain hope in in knowing that we've all been through some pretty, pretty crummy times. And if you are able to, to be a little, you know, introspective and think, okay, the worst thing that's happened to me has happened to me and it has happened. So you can get through this as well. Um, and, and, you know, aside from that, I mean, I, I honestly, I can gather inspiration from watching 
the same bush at the uh, house that I'm renting for any tournament where you can see the flowers, you know, go from being tight little buds to starting to open up to get into full bloom like that. that it's, it's indicative of how life continues on. It's indicative of, you know, even you know, defying all the odds where you have this tight, tight little bud that's just it, it, it's protecting itself. And then it finally opens up to absorb sunlight and to drink in water and by virtue of opening up it's able to showcase some of its own beauty to the outside world um i you can gain inspiration from watching kids i get a lot of inspiration from dogs to be honest that sounds so silly (laughs) but you'll never find anything in the world that is more present than a dog all they want to do is be happy be loved um you know and 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 do what they're bred to do, you know, depending on whether it's a working class dog or, you know, a, a herding dog in that sense. And, you know, they, they, they want, they know their purpose and their purposes are to show unconditional love, to do what they're bred to do and, you know, eat shoes. <laughs> I think all the dog lovers out there, including myself, are kind of nodding our heads and like, yep, you summed it up perfectly. <laughs> And speaking of loving people as dogs do, it seems like where you are as well. And you just, you love to be around other people. And when you're playing, really feed off the energy of fans. How much of a difference has it made to all the players, but especially you in having fans back at golf tournaments in the last few months? Well, it's been, it was, it was a massive, massive change when, um, you know, the pandemic had hit last year. I remember our first tournament back after the initial lockdown period, we were at Inverness, which, you know, obviously is, is, is another beautiful golf course that's just dripping with history and is the, the side of, of the Solheim Cup. Um, and I just remember, one, thinking there was a beauty behind it because sometimes the architecture of a golf course can be um, – you know, sort of not really hidden, but it, it's, it's a, it's a way it, it's an unavoidable thing where you've got grandstands, you have concession tents, you have, you know, the, the tented village, all of this and that. Sometimes you, you forget to be able to take in the entirety of the landscape of a, of a golf course. And I remember thinking one, it is so quiet. And two, in the middle of my round, I would, I would, I did a 360 degree pan and there were like six people on the golf course. I was one of them. My caddy was one of the others. And the other four people were seemingly in my group. You couldn't see anybody. It was, it was very eerie. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, I, I and you're right. I, I love, love, love when people come out to watch. I sometimes joke. I'm like, don't you have better things to do? Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's so, it's, it's so beautiful when, when people come out and they want to show their support of you and of the organization that is running the tournament, uh, whether it's the LPGA, the USGA, the PGA of America, the RNA, um, the ladies European tour. And also, you know, you, you get to, uh, feed off that energy, uh, like you had said, and so it was very strange, but it, it allowed me to just sort of see golf in a different way. And and I loved it. And anytime I get to experience something new and different, I am all in. And so it was, it's, it's been really, really cool to have fans come back out, you know, and, and by virtue of fans coming back out, that shows that 
times are changing again. You know, that shows that, yes, people are getting vaccinated. That means that we are fighting this pandemic. That means that, you know, we're, we're, we're banding together because this is a, a situation that it's not only just about oneself. Obviously, there has to be self-preservation, but at the same time, you know, like, you know, when I, I got my vaccine, I'm fully, you know, I'll be fully vaccinated by the time the U.S. Women's Open comes around. It's it, obviously to protect myself and it's to make sure that I'm preventing uh, further spread of this virus because the last thing we want are more double mutant variants and, and things like that that could um, come into play and, and cause harm to people that we care about, people we don't even know, which are still people that I care about. Yeah, we can't wait to see fans healthy and happy back at the Olympic Club, back at the U.S. Women's Open in such a great sports town in San Francisco, the Bay Area. Another great sports town is Pittsburgh, and you performed very well, top 10 at Oakmont back in 2010. And you talk about iconic venues, a place that's just notoriously difficult in Oakmont Country Club. What do you remember about that week in 2010 that had you playing so well there? Oh, gosh, Oakmont. I... I put Oakmont in my top three favorite golf courses around the world. I remember wow. the very first time I saw those church pews in person. I had chill. I mean, I have goosebumps right now just talking about them. And I remember from 2010, I was like, wow, this is where Nick Flanagan won the U.S. Amateur seven years ago. Again, golf nerd. I know. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, this is where Johnny Miller had his 63, like all these amazing things. Like you, you sit there and again, you get these venues that are, so, you know, just so highly revered that I remember again, I grew up between Olympic Club and Pebble Beach, so I was maybe a little spoiled and a little jaded when it comes to <laughs> some great golf courses. And Olympic Club was one of the first golf courses that I come across that exceeded my expectations, especially because I'd seen it over the years and highlight reels and everything like that. And I just remember one that I was deadly accurate off the tee and I made, I feel like I made like 150 feet worth of putts all week long. And I think I finished like five or eight over for the tournament <laughs> to stay in the top 10. It was such a bear of a golf course. And again, it was just so much fun. And instead of, you know, hitting a shot that you didn't see, um, you know, executed the way you wanted to, it was one of those things where you're like, Oh my gosh. So this means I get the opportunity to get up and down to par. Just so awesome. <laughs> you know, instead of thinking, Oh my gosh, this is going to be an automatic bogey. It's like, dude, you never know. Like I might shank this chip, but I might also hold out. So let's see what happens. So I was just a curious little monkey that week. And, and so full of, of, of hope and joy and just gratitude because it had been so long since the women had been back at Oakmont. And so this week, uh, this, this year's U S women's open, I should say, um, you know, being over at Olympic club for the very first time, it, it, it fills me with that same kind of, you know, hope of that, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, there's definitely a shrug, but you're so excited to see what is going to come out. It's like sticking your hand into a, a, a bag of magic tricks. And your enthusiasm and perspective is infectious. Christina, we can't thank you enough uh, for joining us today. And the U.S. Women's Open is here, and it's going to have 26 hours of uninterrupted, that's commercial-free broadcast coverage on the NBC Universal family of networks, Peacock, Golf Channel, NBC, and live from the U.S. Women's Open is back. The live from set will be at Olympic Club as well. So we can't wait to see the fans. We can't wait to see you, Christina, and all the best and good luck in the U.S. Women's thank Open. Thank you guys so much. I 
I am so pumped. I cannot wait.